0: Make friends with people who want the best for you, and compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Jordan Peterson's Rules for Life, numbers three and four. This is Monica Perez, here with Maddie the Vixen, and we're going on a buddy dive. Hi,
1: Maddie, how are you? I'm great, and I'm so excited to do this new thing of yours called the Buddy Dive. Yes, so
0: you're one of our first buddies. Actually, you're the first buddy I have hosted. Ooh, and yeah, I'm pretty excited that that uh, handle is reserved for fellow podcasters. And uh, then I also have a Dive Master series. If Ooh. you are the Guru, if I had Jordan Peterson himself. That would be the dive master series. But the buddy dives are so fun that that uh, they're my faves. And let's get to it. So let's start with chapter number three. The title of the chapter is make friends with people who want the best for you. So my feeling, let me just set the stage. What I Mm -hmm. felt like the overall theme of this was that basically people in your life can bring you down in two different ways by either pulling you down and encouraging you one way or another to be a less good self, or they can bring you down by kind of sapping your energy and your productivity with a false kind of needy helper relationship. I guess I would call that codependency, dependency mm-hmm. which I, I have heard that I am um, have engaged in. And once I was aware of that, that I'm like not doing anybody favors by overly soliciting, I'm trying to correct that, but it can sneak up on you. So he really gets into it. And it's such an interesting, good chapter. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be up front.
1: So I'm very interested in what you have to say about it. Um, so I guess like my overarching sort of immediate impression of the chapter was that we are, as individuals, we're definitely shaped by our environments. And, you know, that can toughen us up or in some ways really soften us, um, or harden us or weaken us and that based on his kind of recollection of his childhood and, you know, living in Nowhereville, Canada, I'm sure a lot of people can relate in various ways, but you know, when times and when times and, or their surroundings are tough, good friends and good people around you are imperative or, (laughs) you know, good luck really being on your own. I I was struck by that too,
0: how completely isolated and, and obscure his surroundings were. And of course, what heights he reached, which I would think is probably more of the subject of this, the fourth chapter that we're going to, we are going to get to that today too. But he also goes into in that kind of a place, like I grew up in a really blue collar County. And I have to say, as like, I go through this, it's such a personal book. It's such a, I mean, kind of psychological self-help kind of thing that you really can't help it's meant for you to apply it to your own life so it feels a little narcissistic when we' be like well I related to it in this way or I relate but it's the only way you can relate to it and it it does lend itself to self-improvement even if you're just trying to read it from an academic point of view so I can relate that like if you have uh if you if you are in a place that maybe has poverty or um obscurity or a lot of blue collar like I did you do have people in your life who maybe are slaves to drugs or that kind of thing. So he talks about these people that he knew who he knew and like the ne'er-do-wells would hang around with their own ne'er-do-wells and he couldn't understand. He's trying to get to the bottom of how people are like this. And, and it really comes down to the question of nature versus nurture. In in my opinion, like one of the sentences is the degree to which differences among people are immutably part and parcel of the person is greater than an optimist might presume or desire. So he's kind of saying in a person's nature are the seeds of this kind of um, self-destruction and that a lot of it comes from low self-esteem or maybe they refuse to accept responsibility for their lives. And I've always been really fascinated with this idea of nature versus nurture. And I've always kind of thought, especially when I've had kids, like it's very clear that nature is a really, really big part of it. Like people have personality types. You can match them with people in your family. That's why I thought it must be so freaky to be adopted or have an adopted child because there's no, you have to like rediscover every facet of a personality, whereas so much of it is nature. Mm. However, he says that it doesn't matter. You have to still do your best And I've concluded that also, like, I think the nature part might actually be more than 50% of it. However, the part where you're in control of your behavior, it can tame that nature. And if you don't hold people accountable for that, then they will slide into self pity or self loathing and this circle and cycle of self destructive behavior that they are capable of pulling themselves out of it. It might be harder for them, but it doesn't matter. They have to do it. That's their lot in life. Otherwise, they're defeatist, miserable losers,
1: who in these cases are druggies, and one of them was even a suicide. So that turns me to the one thing I pulled out that I really liked, and um, I even have in my notes, uh, no offense any bleeding heart liberals listening, but my notes literally say, this is for the bleeding heart liberals. So before you help somebody in this page 80 of chapter three, before you help someone, you should find out why that person is in trouble. You shouldn't merely assume that he or she is a noble victim of unjust circumstances and exploitation. It's the most unlikely explanation, not the most probable. And then he goes. Besides, if you buy the story that everything terrible just happens on its own with no personal responsibility on the part of the victim, you deny that person all agency in the past and by implication in the present and future as well. In this manner, you strip him or her of all power. And to me, that's like so Thomas Sowley too, like because of the work he did, obviously, in um, relation to inequality amongst the races and in uh, different demographics like that. And he continues and he says like, it is far more likely that a given individual has just decided to reject the path upwards because of its difficulty. And so another thing he like really brings to light in this chapter and kind of like gives us a means, gives people like me um, a means of like forgiving ourselves again for like struggling. It's hard. Like existing is pretty hard if you're aware enough that (laughs) that uh, like to realize that it is hard and that um, it's not something that you can just coast through and you kind of have to continuously choose better, choose um, the good thing. And um, another thing like he touches on in the book here, but like I've heard him say in other uh, lectures, you have to be more than just like obedient. You're not supposed to just be like a slave to what is like the bottom line, like basic Standard like of doing good, quote unquote. You have to do more than that, and so like I, what did I say? I said like an or the hero is po- is is positive, and it's not just the absence of evil. And so it kind it, of like these two chapters, as soon as we sit down and talk about them, I'm like, oh, they actually relate to each other a lot more, don't they? Yes, yes, <laughs> I noticed that. I, like, I don't think about that, like, when I'm actually reading them or rereading them, as I have been doing. And I'm like, ah, eh, these should actually be mixed matched. And if I were a publisher, like, I would have done this. But then, <laughs> then here we are sitting down and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't want to go too far into, like, what would bleed the into next the, the well, next one. But... I had a couple of
0: I had pulled out some of that stuff, too. Uh, The thing about you really uh, if you accept that a person is a victim of his circumstances, a whole lifetime of maybe a pattern of tribulations that been chalking up to something beyond his power, you really do him a disservice and deny him the authority to be the architect of his own life. So when you take away the responsibility, you also take away the authority. Authority and responsibility must go hand in hand. And if you really dig into it at that point, then you start realizing that they do have the authority and they do are going to. Take some responsibility. They they are making choices along the way. And actually, like four different times in these two chapters, I came up with like liberals, like what my mother would call liberals. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of labels, but this is yeah. what my, you know, my mother's all. She talks in these uh in these very black and white ways. And in her mind, a liberal is somebody who wants the welfare state and a conservative is someone who doesn't. And she always points out because she came from nothing and she's still in nothing. So there's 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 no upper. but she's super Catholic. And for her, she's not materialistic. She's not prideful. She's not vain. She doesn't care about that stuff. Like, you'll try to give her money. She does not want it. I tried to pay a doctor's bill for her once. She was super pissed. She was like, I worked it out to pay $25 a month and you just went and paid it. Now I got to pay you all at once. I'm like, okay, okay, forget it. She doesn't want it. You know, she doesn't want it. And she's perfectly happy, but she would say... You know, these crappy liberals, they always want everything to be a handout, for people don't have anything. And then they always manage to not have anything. They always manage when it's time to chip in, they, they're they broke, right? But everything's share, share, until it's time to chip in. And then, oh, yeah, we got to share, but I'm broke. So, uh, so, so many times I was thinking of what my mother was saying about, about about that. And then uh, another thing that I think is kind of like what we might call the liberal stereotype is this idea that you touched on, which is self-sacrificing people are often people who are trying to look good or trying to look like they're doing good, but aren't actually doing good. And, and I used to, that conversation I used to have with my dad, like, and similarly about liberals and conservatives as like the, the bleeding heart liberal thing, he said, they just and I've I've heard this about from guys I know who kind of graduated to like living in Connecticut and being super big time investment bankers, which I never ascended to, but their wives were all like Democrats and liberals and stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding? Don't they know where their bread is butter that like how it, the taxes you pay? Mm. And they said it's to, you know, to, to look, they, they spend their days doing like fundraisers and charities and they want to, look like that's what they care about. Now, on the flip side, a lot of the businessmen are Democrats, too, because with a centralized government, it's a lot easier to grease a few palms and get business than to reinvent yourself every time a new technology disrupts your industry. But that's the flip side of that coin. But yes, there is a lot of image that goes into doing good. And it's actually when you really want to do somebody some good, a lot of times you look like the bad guy.
1: Tough love. That's what you know. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. For sure. And um, so we're not doing a bonus segment today, but that kind of exactly is where I had one point of um, how I thought this like re- this new review of mine, since if it, anybody didn't catch our last, it wasn't called a buddy dive, but if Monica's my <laughs> last visit uh, of I'll this put it book. in the show notes. <laughs> okay, d- good. So um, last time we ended up with a bonus uh, content section at the end where I had in my millionth now review of this book, um, like what was sort of jumping out of me that was different and like having gone through and still kind of being in these awful COVID times and how this, what I saw that kind of connected. And so this, um, what I just read, like, it is far more likely that that a given individual has just decided to reject the path upward because of its difficulty, and um, a few lines down, it, like, I, I underlined especially, like, it's easier not to shoulder a burden, and I kept thinking, like, you know, obviously, like, people took the easy way out, or what they were told maybe was the, um, the miracle pill or what would, you know, nobody, um, public health officials, like it's garbage that we can call them that, or that they want to call themselves that. But the beginning of all this, we weren't told to do anything healthy for ourselves other than all these anti-health policies of staying home and isolating. And, um, all you could do, all you really could do at that point was the online virtue signaling was the, you know, Zooming and the face chats and time and whatever, like everything was behind this filter of a screen. And so recently, like the past uh, month of May, I took a break from my own podcast. I took a break from listening to anybody else's podcast. Like I needed my own mental health break, including like I I took down my Instagram off my phone. Wow. this thing, this thing I've deemed like, yeah, I, I like needed it. I don't and, do Insta,
0: but Twitter for me would well, be.
1: Well, I love Instagram and I didn't give up Twitter, but um, I had to give up something. But so for me, the Instagram is like comparison stress and, you know, that's related to the next- um, That's the next chapter. I it's think, the next yeah. chapter, but- so like, you know, that's all people had, like they couldn't, you know, go on vacations. They couldn't really like they couldn't publicly share that they were having all this fun time out with their friends and their family. I like, meanwhile, my family and I, we were all like the people hanging out with each other because nobody else would. Um, but so that's all people had. And um, so I thought that was something that really like um, stuck out to me for, just through that lens. It totally
0: relates to what happened during this time in that people were doing what the virtue signaling doing what looked like being the good thing but the really good thing would have been to have the courage to stand up mm-hmm. and you know the people who were standing their ground about not wearing masks or getting thrown out of grocery stores or whatever i i personally feel like i didn't feel like those were best especially around here where you were not i mean i realized in the first week that you were never ever winning anybody over yeah So I bought myself like a huge stack of fake masks and I just like did it that way. But I, I, I'm just not confrontational. I do other things that I think add value, but I'm not confrontational. But the fact is that that entire, the whole mask thing, the vaccine thing was based pretty exclusively on this idea that people are much more concerned with looking good than doing good. Also when you're doing something that looks bad, Even if you firmly believe it looks good, there's some signal in that. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Um, And you've got to kind of think hard about that. There's also pushback. There's also you put yourself at much greater risk. And he says that he says real help would require far more effort from both of you than this fake, never ending relationship. Which reminds me, did you ever see the Charlie Murphy skits on the Dave Chappelle show?
1: um where he like jumps on his couch and he's like Charlie Murphy and he yes, think, yes. that
0: was that was uh Rick James
1: yes right Rick James yes yes so, yes
0: yes so Rick James takes his filthy muddy boots and rubs them into Eddie Murphy's white suede brand new couches yes and Charlie who is Eddie's brother and head of security beat the living shit out of him to the point where <laughs> he had to be carried to the car. And and in all these stories of Rick James, he was a major a-hole. So they're looking out the window, down at him literally being carried into the limo. And Eddie, who's super sympathetic, like he was a nice guy, he says to Charlie, like, man, that guy needs some help. And Charlie looks at him and he says, we just gave him some help. And that's when I'm like, when
1: you're giving somebody help Charlie Murphy style. Yikes. Not everybody's really like, clap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, at that point, it's like that person is so far gone that the help that they need is unfortunately something that drastic. Well, and that's what makes me
0: think about the kind of someone who sucks you down kind of thing mm-hmm. is that, and this was kind of along the lines of what my mother says, is, like, they will always find people who have what they want have the money or whatever and in my case sometimes it was I was the one who would be loud and obnoxious at a party and I would like make a fool out of myself but everybody would have a good time and I wouldn't necessarily like make any friends or get the cutest guy but the girl you know a girl might like hanging around with me because I attracted attention So that happens to me a lot. And I would never Mm. pick my own friends. I'd always have my, you know, friends would pick me. I'm not, I was like socially kind of not very savvy and you end up a lot of times getting in relationships where you can be exploited for something that you don't even realize what it is. And there are some people who are just good at that They're who are exploitive and they make a living out of that. They they'll Mm. never change that. And And that doesn't result, I mean, maybe it results in their best life, but a lot of times that's looking to somebody else and kind of sucking the life force out of them, which is bad for you, but it's also bad for them. And that's where I I think Mm -hmm. he's trying to empower people. And and I really found that was difficult, like as with the Catholic upbringings, that you're really supposed to look at absolutely everybody as uh, Jesus is inside that person. Try, Try to see the Jesus in that person. So. I was even taught at one point, like you shouldn't have a best friend, like there should be none of that. And even my mother was like, if if my son committed a crime, I wouldn't like lie on the stand for him. You know, I want to stop that. And I he would have to pay his dues. Like you can't treat people. You can't treat people unjustly for better or worse, because of your relationship with them. Like, that's just not how it works. And so in this idea of like being treating everyone extremely equivalently and not judging them as, as human beings, as children of God, at the same time that you have to not let them walk all over you, that was an area of discernment that I never really mastered and i and i do find when i read this stuff like this book and boundaries it definitely attaches to some of the what can get mixed up in a kind of trying to be the christian approach i guess
1: so related he, he gets into sort of like religious tones a little bit more in the next one but i think it it fits that he also says to sort of like tie up the chapter um he says like, you are not morally, morally obliged to support someone who is making the world a worse place. Quite the opposite. You should choose people who want things to be better, not worse. It's a good thing, not a selfish thing to choose people who are good for you. And I had a very toxic friend when I was younger and I was able to sloth her at the right time. And I kind of like was able to do so because all of a sudden like I had new opportunities and new activities and new friend making potential in front of me and she kind of had none of that and she was like that sort of like vampire sort of person yes, exactly. um and so like unfortunately like it, it did kind of affect somebody else very close in my life cuz once she took her jaws out of me yeah. she went she went to my totally. very close very close um family member, actually. And like, so that was her next victim. And I mean, we both myself and my cousin, I'll say we both survived uh, and eventually escaped the toxic friend. But the toxic friend, like I still have nightmares or like odd dreams to this day where like she kind of haunts me in a weird way. So I don't know if anybody like that is really personal, but I don't know if anybody else like has a history with people like that and if they're still bothered with them and if anybody has any suggestions on like how to make peace with this ghost in my mind well definitely open to it for me what I don't like is that I have had people in my
0: life like that and I kind of invented ghosting which is completely beneath me now like I would really have a very hard time with that so like it just seems so rude and kids will do it all the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you do that. And I'm thinking like, I've done that. Like to people who are so toxic yeah. that you can't have that confrontation and you're just like, I can't talk to you anymore. Like, so, mm-hmm. and I just, that's what haunts me. That's what I just, I just can't stand is that there was just that breach of etiquette. <laughs> but but that's what they say. Like, if you look at, I, I can't think of an example from the political sphere, but I've definitely seen where the fact that the good people are bound by etiquette is really exploited by an extremely political or manipulative person definitely yeah they or like the pathological liars will do that like they'll just lie and cheat and whatever and you're like pretty sure they're doing it to you but you would never call someone a
1: liar so it just has to go on and on forever and it's like ah it's sort of like, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize or even pick <laughs> you sides You totally do liberals. I have that another bullet point right there. But here. It, exactly <laughs> what, you, what you just said, though, is like, <laughs> you know, um, if, if uh, it weren't for double standards, liberals wouldn't have any. <laughs> I think bon, Dan Bongino says that a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't agree with everything Dan Bongino says for many reasons. But that's cute. Yeah, it's. Uh, so I was thinking that.
0: This is another thing that comes up in, the, in those kind of relationships is that and, and that's why it's like a liberal thing is is that they will they'll define when it comes to redistribution, they'll define everything in terms of wealth, like actual dollars. Yep. Yet they'll also profess and live a life that maximizes leisure and dignity and low stress and all this kind of stuff. So when it's time to split things up, their stuff doesn't count at all. Right. Like there's no way to split up, like going to the park, but there is a way to split up your income. So I just feel like a lot of the times when you're talking about people who, on the surface of it all, have less or are needy or whatever, it's really so often just a function of choices. People who prioritize or get more utility out of leisure, yeah, they don't have as big a bank account. But I mean, anybody, It's very clear that the people who who save and think of money like that understand what I'm saying. And it sounds self-serving because that's how I think of that kind of stuff, even though I was never a saver. I'm not a saver, but I figured what the hell. I don't care. (laughs) You know, I don't care. I didn't walk around saying, well, I have no money now. So I want to have for yours. I was like, I have no money now. So I'll be a waitress, which I love. So, you know, (laughs) fine with me. But I just, I feel like there is a a mindset where you can cry the victim if you're, and this goes right into the next chapter. So let's go into it. You can claim the victim if you're comparing yourself with somebody else on with, and you frame that comparison very narrowly to be the thing where you have less. And then that person is all of a sudden obliged to you. But the next paragraph, shall we go to the next chapter? Yeah, let's do it. The next chapter is compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who somebody else is today. And I will give you the very first passage I have from here. He says, refrain such as quote, there will always be people better than you, or in a million years, no one will know the difference. You can frame anything to be meaningless. Talking yourself into irrelevance is not a profound critique of being. It's a cheap trick of the, rational mind. So he talks about how you frame the argument and you can frame your perspective on, on who you are, what you're doing so broadly that you are meaningless, nothing. And then in the, for the last chapter, I say that they, they frame it so narrowly that you're so amazingly better off than they are, that they, uh that you pity them. But it's a trick of the framing. Now I did want to say what I had originally thought this, Rule four was about feeling good about your accomplishments, like patting yourself on the back, but it's not. It's really about setting and attaining goals, thinking about how to improve your life, setting attainable goals and attaining mm-hmm. them. I think that's what it's all about. And once I, I had to read it a few times to read, sh- I'm sure it's, it seems like it was obvious to you, but it just took me a while to to understand what he was saying.
1: Well, it does kind of like curveball you to that in a way. And um so I that was my first highlight of the chapter, too, the same one you just read for the record. Um I kind of also love how he's a little bit like denigrating to the reader. Like he calls you like he's like, what do you know? Like you know nothing. Like you didn't even know you were blind. And the the technique here is a little bit like cults where they tear you
0: down. And then they Uh, fill you up with something else. Like you're a piece of crap. There's lots of like self-help techniques in here, I think. But I mean, one of the best books I ever read in my life was the easy way to stop smoking. And that was certainly just purely a self-help tactic after self-help tactic, total psychological manipulation. But that's why I like this book because it's, it really gets into your head. Now, if what he was doing was manipulating you into doing bad things or, joining a cult <laughs> like yeah. that would be a problem but yeah he he definitely tears i think he makes you face the reality of the feelings that get you to not do what you should do and he's like not super afraid of the word should he should oh,
1: on us <laughs> he does and that was another thing um i want to get to uh but i guess like just to go back to what you're you kind of realized was the theme is that um like he gives you tips and tricks and uh, ones that I've used a ton of like how you can just set those like small attainable and incremental goals. Like literally, like he gives you the kind of, um, like step-by-step it's just like, you know, first, uh, pay attention and like take stock, like figure out like exactly like kind of what you have, what's going on with you being like willing and open to asking yourself questions, like what you want, what you need. And, um, I, one of the things I really like, I can't, I didn't mark it down exactly, but I found it again when I was listening was, um, what can you do for yourself so that you don't just feel like a beast of burden? And considering I like, I'm an insane workaholic, um, like by default, um, I have to, I have to literally like ask myself that, like, what can I do for myself that, um, you know, I will be able to go and return to my work, but I need a moment of just like, caring for myself so that I can go attend to the other things later. So that's, that is what uh, you, so much of this chapter is what I got out of that.
0: Yes, that was big. And the way I was thinking of that is you do have to ask yourself what's important to you. And he really touches on something. I think I have a passage highlighted that I really wanted to read because of this. And it, and it goes to age, so a lot of times I feel like I don't want to make that assessment about what I expect, what I want, what I need, because I'm thinking, is this reasonable? Is this what other people think? Like I am, I think I'm unreasonable. And he tells you at, at the end, he kind of tells you, if it's driving you crazy, it's just it's you. It's not. It's you. You're unique. Like, it's fine. Do you need that? That you're, you are, you have the right to deal with the things that make you crazy. And it doesn't matter if that's what makes other people crazy. If you are batshit crazy (laughs) and you're institutionalized, you're, this is probably not the book for you. But, and you're, and you're not reading this book. Like, definitely not. (laughs) But if you are reading the book, maybe it'll get you out of there. But let me, I really want to read this. I am not a big fan of like long passages, but I, like highlighted this several times it says when we are very young we are neither individual nor informed we have not had the time nor gained the wisdom to develop our own standards in consequence we must compare ourselves to others because standards are necessary without them there's nowhere to go and nothing to do as we mature we become by contrast increasingly individual and unique the conditions of our lives become more and more personal and less and less comparable with those of others. That's absolutely true. And then it keeps going to where I think is a brilliant insight. Symbolically speaking, this means we must leave the house ruled by our father and confront the chaos of our individual being. Yeah. We, we must take note of our disarray without completely abandoning that father in the process. Here's the money to me. We must then rediscover the values of our culture. Veiled from us by our ignorance, hidden in the dusty treasure trove of the past. Rescue them and integrate them into our own lives. This is what gives existence its full and necessary meaning. So that was a really lot. But I think the first half of it was about how you you are unique and individual. And as a kid, you're just trying to understand the context. The context mm-hmm. is, is much more uh, is much richer and more objective really in a way the context and then as you integrate as you choose your environment as you become a part of your environment and your own personality kind of merges with that and you grow you set goals you get experiences and you do become a unique person who has a perspective and that is uh presumably valid i feel like if you if you can if you can produce enough to feed yourself, I would say that you understand truth and that you're a valid person. And if you're incapable of doing that for disability reasons, uh, there are other ways to measure, I think. But anyway, but then he points out that that context, which as a kid is kind of very localized and everything, as an adult, when you no longer have that context, what you do have and should have and benefit from is the context of culture so that you you do see those norms and standards that hopefully you've grown into and they can make you more secure more self-confident able to grow within it's like a crepe myrtle crepe myrtles are bushes but if you pull Mm -hmm. off like the little branches as they go up they really look like a tree and if that's how you want to do it like it can get taller if what you want is to get closer to the sun then you can do those things. And it's just very helpful to have a, and it's like also, I think CS Lewis says like there's change. That's good. Like the change of the seasons and there's change. That's bad. Like constant chaos. And Mm -hmm. I feel like the cultural destruction that we see around us, that's being intentionally implemented is to rob us of that context. So we cannot grow. And certainly so that we cannot teach our children. And furthermore, they intentionally rob our children of respect for context and culture so that they too are a totally undisciplined mind, incapable of, of upward growth. Boom. That's a hundred percent it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. It was yeah. so important to me. I was like, wow, yes, right. Absolutely. Got it. Yes. And, and that's important. And, and I think that maybe is the essence of his perspective.
1: So a huge part of that in like, exactly what they're maybe trying they the big they, is what they're trying to dismantle is that like as you become an adult like a an independent um hopefully self-responsible functioning adult in society in this you know ongoing culture you are making these as he points out like value judgments and that's just what you do and so like you know as a kid you're not making those calls, not not many of them. Um, and, and many of them might be totally subconscious and, and you don't even realize you're doing it. And you're maybe just mimicking something you've seen either like by your peers or your family members or your parents or whatever. But then as you become an adult, you kind of have to consciously make these decisions for yourself and one way or another, like there's no, as he says, there's a, the idea of a value-free for, Value-free choice is a contradiction in terms. Value judgments are a precondition for action. And so like that's a hu- very necessary, I think, step in becoming an adult. And if you're not able to sort of weigh the um, pros and cons of things, like you can't make um, a very responsible or good decision on your own, and then you're, you need the nanny state to look after you forever, and you suck as a person, and that's what they want. He
0: goes on, I actually also highlighted that and I pulled something else too. After that, he says, furthermore, every activity once chosen comes with its own internal standards of accomplishment. If something can be done at all, it can be done better or worse. So there are standards and in other places, and I think you were kind of starting with this, in other places, he talks about Picking what's right for you, picking something that you can accomplish. Do not, that's where it comes to like, don't compare yourself to other people. Mm -hmm. Understand yourself, get to know yourself, get to know what makes you miserable, what you're good at, what you enjoy, what is necessary, what's worthwhile. And really, it is important to, I don't know if he ever actually says it like this, and it's a, a little bit hackneyed, but like, strive, challenge, achieve, but really set attainable goals and and actually goes to like uncle ted and his for the power principle one of them is you have to have like autonomous thing goals but they have to be important and achievable and i think that's part of it and but you can assess your accomplishment because everything does come with its own standards. And I'll tell you, like, you think you can't really assess yourself. And like a very kind of insular thing is like if you listen to your own podcast. Like if you go every once in a while have to quality control, which I absolutely hate doing, but I just don't want to hear it. But if I I noticed over the years that if I listen to it and it's good, I know it's good. And if I listen to it and it's bad, I know it's bad. Like I know. And That's why I feel like another problem with the culture is they, they always tell you, don't judge, don't judge. You're judgmental. Mm -hmm. Don't judge. Everything is relative, you know? And it's like, no, you must judge. He says, valid judgments are a precondition for action. You must judge. You must judge before and you must judge after. And that's how you learn. That's how you learn. It's super, it's very annoying. Do not want to go back and listen to your own stuff, but (laughs) that, and I was, so I, I, wasn't doing it for the longest time. And then my friend Noble from CFR Network, he was just like, just do it once a month. Just, you have to do it once a month. And I think that's I like, fair. Okay. Yeah, so I do. But you have to, it's a little painful to like judge yourself to yeah. do that value. But you can do it and don't, that's another thing. You have to have the courage. Like, this is why I think people drink. I think people drink, a l- sometimes, sometimes let's just say I've had this problem myself and I quit drinking for like a year and a half once I was going for a year or two years, I either overachieved or underachieved. I can't remember. But anyway, I didn't drink for a really long time. And I realized that prior to that, I like, I didn't like to think of all that. Like I ghosted somebody, right? Like that haunts my, like when I try to go to sleep, I can't go to sleep because I'm so worried about something I did that was bad. Like 20 years ago, whatever. And I find that if you, in in my youth, I could just drink, drink all night, drink till I just went to sleep without thinking. And I feel like it really doesn't take very long. You could do that for a lifetime. But if you stop doing that for like three months, you can exercise all of those demons. So you can, you can, you can look at yourself. You can judge yourself. You can really examine it, have the courage to do that. It's totally doable And it reminds me of something else he said in this chapter, which was basically, I've got this pile of paper. It's driving me crazy. (laughs) And I, and this is one of my tricks of life. I do this to my kids all the time. I'm like, set your timer Mm -hmm. for 20 minutes. And if you're not finished cleaning the kitchen in 20 minutes, just put it down. I'm not, I'm totally fine. That's great. 20 minutes will get me so much further than I would have gotten. Please. It's, and I happen to know it takes 20 minutes to clean the kitchen. So they always finish and they feel good about it. And it's helpful. I rarely It's, a, ask it's them an accomplishment. Yeah, I don't ask them enough. But I do always like, and I'll even do it for myself. I have a miserable task. I'll set the thing for five minutes and, and I'll do it. And you can do that even with self-examination or evaluating mm-hmm. your own work. Like just set your timer for five minutes and like listen to your own whatever. Or like nobody's really going to have to so listen to their own podcast. But like, you know, reread that memo or go over that essay that you wrote for school like one more time. <laughs> And and it and it's amazing how much you can accomplish if you're not afraid of you know making that value judgment without judging yourself for not being perfect. Then you can still love yourself and still make improvements and they should be attainable. And within that, I, I, I like it. I think he's getting yeah,
1: here. I think so. And um another thing that like that that I pulled that you just sparked um for me to go find was um page 90, he says, you have a nature. You can play the tyrant to it, but you will certainly rebel. How hard can you force yourself to work and sustain your desire work? How much can you sacrifice to your partner before generosity turns to resentment? What is it that you actually love? What is it that you genuinely want? Before you can articulate your own standards of value, you must see yourself as a stranger, and then you must get to know yourself. So, um, like you kind of just said during your period of sobriety, like I had my own, and it was its own form of hell, like facing (laughs) all the demons. But it's like I glad that's over. Well, (laughs) I made it through. You know, I made it through stronger. Yeah, no, me too. And I never really
0: drank to excess again after that.
1: Same, like it changed. I think everything about me in exactly the way it needed to, and. I read this book before I, you know, had my sober period, but like, this is one thing I really turned to a lot in, um, getting through that time as I like, you know, had to face all my failures and all my, um, insufficiencies as a person, you know, everything that I didn't do right. I had to sort of like attend to at that time and there was no running away from it.
0: No, I actually wrote a note to myself. What do you do to avoid conflict? Like I feel like that was something he was asking. And I think he said like do you lie and I wrote like do you drink, do you slip out the back door without saying goodbye or ghost somebody? And and I wonder if if it's because you're unsure of yourself or you think other people uh, will judge you for what are probably I mean they have to be valid feelings like I said. If you're unless you're off the wall, I mean, the whole range of feelings are valid given the nature and nurture that makes you up. And I mean, all you need is courage. There's a lot of of courage in this one.
1: Definitely. Harking back to something you mentioned earlier about how much he shoulds on us. Like I've, <laughs> you know, I went through yoga training and just um a lot of mindfulness and being aware. and And like, even like my foray into education. It's like you shouldn't say should. And it's like and I've yep. always been the kind of Don't person I'm like on yourself. And I'm I've always been the kind of person that's like, well, some people really need some shoulds. Like and you know, they should probably take it, yeah, um, pay attention to that. They should, should. And so he says, um Page 90 should is your responsibility and you should live up to it. But this does not mean you must take the role of lapdog, obedient and harmless. And that's how a dictator wants his slaves. And so it goes back to like something he does like tie into a lot in this chapter is like that not only is there this potential for an outside tyrant or totalitarian dictator, but you can absolutely be that person to yourself. And you might not be that person to other people, but it's just as dangerous to do that to yourself.
0: I noticed that should comment too. And I think his whole outlook is like, is this conclusion that I really was an eye opening to me when I came to this realization after so many years of just being exposed to psycho babble, warm and fuzzy, I'm okay, you're okay stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I thought, oh my gosh, if there's something you don't like about yourself, you should change it. And I was like, and I started to do that. And it wasn't very, unfortunately, I'm stuck in this rut where the only, the most important thing is like, I always just want to lose 10 pounds and I'm never going to lose the 10 pounds. Like I've never, I, I maybe it's like, oh, you can do it. Like, I don't, I don't even know if I need to, like, I just, so I never think of changing anything. I was like, first I need to lose 10 pounds. <laughs> so yeah. I think now I'm going to like, first I'm going to clean out my closet and then I'm going to lose them. <laughs> like, and that's a big thing. And then people think that's a metaphor. I'm like, Oh, I don't think it's a metaphor. It's like, not. I think you're supposed to clean out your closet. Like, that makes me happy. Yes. <laughs> totally. It does. So, this uh, yoga story came up in one of my notes on just right where we are in this. Yeah. He says that if you're not getting what you need, it could be because of what you want. So, mm-hmm. I said something like that. And I remember le- reading the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali as mm-hmm. written by Swami Sachi Dananda. And I remember discovering like there's so it's like reading, I think it's like Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Is that it? Where this stuff predates Christ, but it's like very Christ-like in its wisdom. And I remember thinking that one of the things he said was basically that, that you will have everything you want if you want nothing, basically. And that's pretty draconian. I understand that, but it's not as cute as it sounds. The fact is desires, if you're in the habit of desiring, your desires will constantly replace themselves. Like you'll always be striving for more desires. So I read this. I read it because I went to yoga. I was doing yoga. I was doing ash, ash, Ashtanga. Ashtanga, yeah, where it's like 90 minutes of self-led and the the last time I did it, I actually got all the way through to where I was like a backwards pretzel. It was very cool. Nice. So yeah, and I loved it. I was like, "This is cool." And who thought of this? And someone was like, "Oh, Patanjali." And I was like, "Got it." And I was like, "He didn't think of this." And I'm like, "No, you have to do that so that you can sit there for three hours and think of nothing," which is basically. And I was like, "But this isn't nothing." It's like I never really, never really cracked the code on yoga, but I was getting close. <laughs> I was getting close and I started to just free my mind of like desires and worries and all of that. I was like, you know, just hold your empty rice bowl and it will get filled. And it was working for me. But my kids weren't getting their diapers changed. Like nobody was getting to the little, like I wasn't making any lunch. I was missing planes. I was like, oh, this society is not set up for not worrying constantly. Like it is not. And I had a sister who was a probably heroin and methadone. she's methadone. I think she actually did meth and methadone. Anyway, she was uh, just a lifelong, I guess, alcoholic and drug addict. But she was very smart and well read. And I was talking to her, and I I said, "Oh, you're so lucky." <laughs> she's like, "I'm lucky. I'm lucky. You're married. You have kids. You live in the nice house. And I'm lucky." I said, you're lucky because you have nothing. (laughs) She was like, up yours, up yours, baby. (laughs) Because my nickname was baby. So, uh, but I was like, you can do it. Like read, and I sent her like the yoga sutras of Patanjali. And I said, you can do it. Like you can just, you can just get off on washing the dishes. Like you could do it and you could have no worries at all. (laughs) She lived at my mother's house. Like she wasn't paying the rent anyway. I was like, you can do it. Okay, give me a break. So it didn't it didn't work out for her, but I remember thinking that there's, you know, nothing can be a real cool hand. But it's really obviously that's excessive, and you really can't. I have a lot of responsibilities that are that I made, I committed to in the context of this culture, and mm-hmm. I have to live up to it. However, you can certainly reorient to where you are not if you don't compare yourself to other people then then that never-ending desire ladder it's a lot easier to get that under control if you actually look inward to see what it is that would truly make you happy and not care at all what other people think which also goes to the third rule where like you're doing good because you want people to think that you do good but that's not that's that again is is not the path to contentment. And one thing that I, I gleaned from that little conversation or that passage was that desire is not the opposite of satiety, satiation. It's the opposite of contentment. So you don't you don't cure desire by satisfying it. You cure desire by channeling contentment, I think.
1: So as he puts it, um, we are always and simultaneously at point A, which is less desirable than it could be, moving towards point B, which we deem better in accordance with our explicit and implicit values. We always encounter the world in a state of insufficiency and seek its correction.
0: You know what I wrote next to that? I annotated that. What do you got? Is this Klaus Schwab's way of life? Ugh! Right? Because he just looks at the world and he's like, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it or whoever tells him, whoever's got their hand up his back is saying demon. (laughs) Yeah. They're going to fix it that they just see that it's always wrong and they always want to fix it. I like, you know, I do think that it's really necessary to have that balance. Like you, I I find because I was a math person, I really wasn't like a creative, but I find that, that when you do create like what little things I do cook, uh, and I'm not even great at that, but I'm getting better at it. I do make good cocktails, but you know I don't have a centrifuge. Like I look at the guy. You're right. Like I look at the guys who do like the hard shake in Tokyo. And like, I don't think I could do that.
1: Well, I know. I know. Rule four. Rule four. I know. I know. <laughs> I compare myself <laughs> to the wrong person.
0: Yeah. But, but yeah, just I do find that that creative process is is something really worth engaging in, and that is progress. That is moving towards point B. But to be in a constant state of criticism of point A isn't, isn't the answer. It is that he has another place around, I think page 88 or 89 to be grateful for the areas in your, in your life where you are better off than somebody else. Don't, you're always comparing within the context of when you're losing and you don't compare, but at least give yourself some credit for the, your whole person and the parts that are satisfactory. And that will probably give you the, you know, a little bit of strength to face the pile of papers or the dirty closet or the the demon ghost from your past.
1: This is such a beefy chapter. So like that kind of um, reminded me that I think it's worth mentioning how, you know, he says something like if there was no better or worse, or if there was no better and worse, nothing would be worth doing. There would be no value and therefore no meaning. Why make an effort if it doesn't improve anything? Meaning itself requires the difference between better and worse, and so to me that kind of like triggered the short story *Harrison Bergeron*. Have you ever read that? No. Um, we might need to show notes that one because okay, a, it's a it's a very short story, and it's something that I read back in like middle school, and so I'm amazed sometimes at what I was. Um, a sign to read in you know <laughs> public school yeah. because so Harrison Bergeron is the story of this man who must have been exceptional in a time where everybody had to be equal, and so the government or whatever authority figure that was there ruling over everybody like, if you were a pretty ballerina who was graceful. They put an ugly mask on you to make you, you know, more equal with other facets of beauty with, you know, amongst the community or peers or whatever. Um, And if you were too graceful, you know, they put weights on you so like that you couldn't be more graceful than other people. And same like in the male perspective, like if you were a very strong man, they would put a bunch of stuff on you to weigh you down and make you clumsy Or if you had like exceptional hearing or eyesight, like they damage one of those for you because God forbid you had something better than somebody else. And it's a truly like haunting story. But to me, like I think about that all the time when, you know, again, these GD bleeding heart liberals <laughs> who aren't liberal at all in any to, sense of the word in any sense of the word they want everybody to be equal in uh, like nobody's ever going to be equal in ability or outcome but they seem to want to shove that idea on people and make people want to strive for that like strive for the equality I think instead of um, because their they will own never veteran.
0: they'll never never be able to accomplish it and if these guys are promising it, it's kind of like security. If they're never yeah. able to, no, no, no. If, they, if they make you feel insecure and they're selling security and it's in their power to make you feel insecure, they're going to do that. And if it's in their power to make you think that uh, there is such a thing as equality that can be defined externally and provided externally, they're selling that. And it's just genius to sell something that can never, the demand will never go away.
1: Yeah, I mean, same with, um, you know, the idea that they keep perpetuating racism that it exists because that's what they need to they keep could winning.
0: Put it, put it to bed with Obama. And instead they used him to make it so much worse. That yeah, was outrageous. Absolutely. We were I, so happy. We got, we got I, much worse off after that. And, and they did it on purpose. I remember. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Eric Holden said the way they talked about it. They actually said, now we're going to and I remember going just about my day after he was elected in Atlanta and. It was it was like I mean I didn't vote for him but people just felt like our divisive past was over and that we had agreed to like not be racist anymore or whatever was the the narrative and those guys had it in the power and they really I was like how, how are they going to why would they let Obama become president when surely that will neutralize their most potent wedge issue and lo they used him to make it worse paradoxically but of course the paradox if you worry about paradoxes, like worrying about hypocrisy
1: it's just there's <laughs> never any fodder for that and um something that you point out very well and often is um and i'll try to pitch it to you so i don't butcher it but you know, it takes the Republican to actually get the gun control passed, right? And then, but it takes the Democrats and the liberals to like, you know, make their their start a uh, war, sacred, yeah, right, start a war, Ukraine, and make their sacred cow of racism and like, you know, inequality yes, equality worse. worse,
0: Yes, it takes it takes the Democrats to call Clarence Thomas a pervert, you know, like a sexual harasser. Like, what the hell? I mean, yeah. that, was, that was so. Uh, like it's just why are they not held accountable for that so I have two things left so on page 107 of my copy of this book it's he says to it's really hard for me to get my mind around I'm gonna try to just say the way he says it he says to aim for the like improvement of being and I think he puts being in capital capital B maybe even Mm -hmm. I the improvement too Mm -hmm. and some of these stories I, I've told before, but I get new listeners all the time, and it's it's relevant in this context. He says something that really spoke to an experience I had. He says, "In order to do this, and he's really like he doesn't claim to be religious, but he's a his expertise was religion. Yeah, and it really goes to the wisdom of religion and the cultural value of religion. A lot of what he says, and and that's what he's saying. He's not even saying like worship God. He's saying acknowledge." the higher good Mm -hmm. and try to put yourself in that context. And he said, you might start by not thinking Mm -hmm. or more accurately by less trenchantly by refusing to subjugate your faith to your current rationalist and its narrowness of view. So I had that exact experience. So for, because of a tragedy, my family, I decided to return to the church for just even though i like i still have a hard time envisioning me without my body having a conversation with god after i'm dead like i just it's very hard for me to be like hi god i'm monica you might recognize me from i don't know do i have brown hair anymore i don't know it's very hard <laughs> for me to get my mind around that So as an intellectual, I could never really embrace any kind of religion or spirituality or anything, not because I didn't think it was real. I just couldn't, I can't get my mind around it. I just can't. So I decided that for reasons I won't get into right now, but I have before and I will again, I decided to go back to the church and I really struggled with it. And I wrote a note to myself, which I probably still have in my wallet somewhere. I wrote a note to myself like, just suspend your intellectualizing everything like you just stop thinking about it for a while like just stop thinking about it for a while try it on for 5 years it's like try it on for 5 years and if your life is better at the end then stick with it if it's the same or worse then then you don't have to but just give it 5 years and it really was about not thinking And I just it's so hard for me to get my mind around that. And it and it sounds like yeah, to be religious, be Catholic, whatever you have to not think. Because but but actually, Catholicism isn't like that because it's quite intellectual. And you can find the answers whether you agree with them or not, but you can find basically any question addressed. But for me, like those super metaphysical questions are just unanswerable. And the the yoga guy said that too. The question of God is irrelevant and unanswerable because the answer is the same. It's to eliminate that constant desire which is really that higher being thing that really is what this the two sides of this chapter i think are about is is the uh don't compare yourself to other people don't want that also do achieve something actualize and and uh you know from those who much have been given much will be expected but so the two parts of this chapter is yes don't compare yourself to other people You can get yourself out of that desire loop if you take it out of the context of comparisons, but you can also, if you aim for something higher, eliminate even the desire to engage in those kind of odious comparisons while still accomplishing something and achieving something greater for yourself that's truer to yourself.
1: Yep, I mean you'll be on a new trajectory, and some things that you might care about in the present are going to be things that you don't care about later, and especially once you set yourself on a new or different path, and hopefully it's an improved path or it's um, aiming towards that better. And I think something very like scientific that he points out in this chapter two is the <laughs> the fact that you can't see something that you're not per- like specifically focusing on because your vision is expensive, as he puts it, which is very understandable from like my biological and evolutionary like development of humans understanding. And another sort of one of those things where he gives you this information in a way that makes you, able to feel a little bit better about yourself and, you know, some of your shortcomings. And it's like, no, 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 this isn't just you. You're not the only blind one. Literally everyone is blind to some things and or most things, unless it's literally in their focus (laughs) and it's what they're choosing to focus on. And so that goes back to like what he says that you kind of have to ask yourself these questions. You have to like sort of get this um, information from within you, um brought to the surface so that you can therefore use that and sort of like, all right, well, this is what I actually want. This is like the this is um, you know, a new goal, a new vision for myself. And then once you have that new vision, that alone is going to start to take you in a different direction. And there's yes, nothing I, wrong with that.
0: I've often wondered <laughs> when the next moment will come when I realize that there was so much more something that really changes my perspective on the world I mean when the scales fall from your eyes about some false flag event or something yeah and you're like oh my gosh Dick Cheney did tell the (laughs) he did shoot that plane down you know I I don't know if he did that I, I forget the details of that but like when you're like obviously Dick Cheney is not in on this, you know, and it, then you're just like, oh my gosh, obviously Dick Cheney was in on that. <laughs>
1: like, what yeah. the
0: hell, you know? And you're just like your whole entire worldview changes. Or when, like for me, I realized that like uh, evolution is mathematically impossible. This is I, I just concluded that i've seen it written out too maybe people tell me it's not but i've never it's never been proven to me that it's mathematically possible the way darwin explains it darwin darwinism mm-hmm. and i just when you realize that you're I, I, like oh well i need i need another explanation and like the whole world opens up to you because you're like wow i really have no idea like i don't And then you start thinking, well, what else are they lying about? Oh (laughs) yeah, What else did I assume was true that isn't true? And I'm just waiting for the next kind of revelation. And it might be an apparition. Maybe, maybe I'll see a ghost. I'm like, all right, I, I guess you do still have brown hair. I don't know. (laughs) Like, well, let's see what happens next. But yeah. So I, I just, I do like the way that he's hyper rational and also goes to that kind of higher stuff. Now, I definitely sense a little cultiness in the techniques, but there's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, I did quit smoking when I read that book, <laughs> the easy way to stop smoking. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with using psychology for people to actually take responsibility for themselves, which is not what it's been used for, for the most part
1: until now. Definitely. And I mean, you know, he's not wild. Yeah. He was doing um, tours and talking about this book and he has a sequel that I haven't read yet. You know, whenever I heard or saw like a headline or some stupid blurb about him growing and starting this cult, I'm like, you've never, you haven't read it. You've never listened to him. It's really, I think like there's, he's definitely got a lot of, um, of his own blind spots. I think as we all do, um, But he is giving tools for people like us, and for people who aren't like us, but maybe we want to become more like us. And thinking that you should take a little bit more responsibility for your own life, and you know it's going to be hard work, and you might be really frustrated with that process all the time, if not most of the time. But that's that's what we're here to do, and that's like you're going to find meaning in that too, and there will be some satisfaction from that with every single even little tiny accomplishment that you can make.
0: And he wouldn't actually probably really be able to understand this if he didn't have his own challenges and blind spots and stuff. He really wouldn't understand it. And then you also have the idea that, and I say this about everyone from Thomas Jefferson to Martin Luther King Jr. Is that if what they do or say, or what their, their contribution has a lot of value, it doesn't, serve any purpose to try to dilute that value mm-hmm. by criticizing, bring in things that you could criticize those people for. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't criticize those people, but it's irrelevant to the value that they've actually added. And and whatever he wrote after this, he could have mm-hmm. turned around and come out as some uh, just evil genius, subversive, whatever, but we have discernment. Mm-hmm. We can read these things and understand if it's a limited hangout or if it was you know masking some evil disposition it doesn't matter because a lot of this stuff has real value and i really so far i don't see the harm i don't i don't see the danger in it and so i know people criticize but i feel like they for the most part the problem is that he's so powerful and empowering Empowering. but i do think that they've Mm -hmm. got i forget the guy's name but i heard a clip of some I don't know if he's Israeli or some guy who talks a lot like Jordan Peterson, but he's from the left. Hmm. So I'll have to track that guy down. I know people are listening. and they're going to write in the comments like, it's this guy, whatever. So I think that he's so powerful that they had to occupy or Indivisible was the response to the Tea Party. I forget what it was, but like, they will respond in kind to something that has a lot of power. If something emerges grassroots from a libertarian perspective or a conservative perspective or whatever, they will definitely hijack that and morph it into something from their own side. So I think that
1: there, that proves that it's pretty valuable, that it has value. And I think that we're, we're getting to it. I think so too. And, um, it might be my conspiracy minded brain or my, brain that happens to be aware of a lot of actual conspiracies out there (laughs) I should say um 9-11 um but I thought it at the time that it was a little suspicious to me his fall like his like life going to Russia to get off panic yeah being like incapacitated as a human for a long time like a, a significant period like I don't trust those medical professionals that were that so set do you him on that path
0: that he was sabotaged or that he was playing a game.
1: I think he was sabotaged. Right. I mean, he was at the peak. And I know, yes. you know, the story is that, like, all the all these stressors in his life were taking place at the same time. And, and he's just got these chronic health issues, of course, that need to be addressed in addition to, like, you know, stress and depression and life things <laughs> like when you're taking on sort of the weight of the world um but i st- i i was immediately kind of just like smelling something odd about that and um
0: yeah i was suspicious too but i didn't know whether to mistrust him or the people around him but now that you put it that way after what happened to Joan Rivers i feel like there's a good possibility that there that a person like that could be sabotaged the thing with him though is like he just went from 0 to 60 so fast as a rising star that yes that could contribute to that kind of a crash but I'm always suspicious of people who just make the scene like that and actually the intro to this book talks about kind of explains how he made the scene and even that Mm -hmm. that's that it required an explanation is I don't know like that's kind of freaky to me too
1: but I like the book I know. Yep. It's still one of my faves.
0: So, and I find it very empowering and I think that it does take courage, but anyway, so we'll see what the future, tra- I haven't read the whole book, so I'm just doing a chapter by I'm chapter. I'm excited by. to keep we'll doing We'll see the this next two, five and six. This yep. is super, super fun. Thank you so much. It's really, I, I really love exchanging ideas with you, especially in the context of some big and good ideas. Is there anything that we missed? Anything you want to tell people where they can find you? I think we're probably both want to do that.
1: I think we captured a a lot and anything else is like everybody should read the book like if you're (laughs) you're you're back on voluntary
0: victims right you took some time off but you're back in action
1: yes um jesse took it away uh, for us both last night i just wasn't ready but we're lining up for you know the summer guests and if anybody listening like wants to join us for just an interesting conversation with normal people that's kind of what we do you know we don't we we get some big names on there. John sure McAfee man. That I mean we, we did man. you know humble, humble brag. We did have John McAfee rest in peace. You've and, had a couple um, of big wigs on there. We do have some big names. You but do. I mean, our preferred thing is like, will we have an awesome conversation with that person? And generally we do. So, you know, we're I've always had lots of fun that's all with that's the all Vixens. we're looking for yes uh monica and binkley were definitely some preferred guests so we'll have to sure. meet up again soon
0: yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so this yeah this is a uh, a buddy dive i think Woo. this is actually my first official buddy dive and what a great buddy to choose thank you maddie the vixen this is monica perez thanks for
1: listening thank you